Welcome to Kingdom Keys Podcast with Pastor Tarod Hatcher. In this session, we'll talk about eight hindrances to your prayers. We've covered prayer in its entirety in terms of what prayer does for you and how prayer operates. And uh, we finished on a very dynamic piece of of praying in the name of Jesus and kind of talked about that idea of understanding that if it was power just in the name, then we really couldn't have changed his name from Yeshua to Jesus because the name matters. In any other country, if I go to another country, my name will always be Tarad. Now, the language after that and the language surrounding it will change, but my name is Tarad. So if it were the name itself, then we would not have been able to call him Jesus or Emmanuel because the name itself carried the power. But what we know is it's not the name. The name in Hebrew means the character of. And so now that we've gotten this clear picture of prayer and and praying in the name of Jesus, now we have to talk about what can hinder your prayers. We're going to talk about eight things today. And the first thing that's obvious that we'll discuss is sin. Sin is the one thing that can separate us from the Lord, the Bible says. Sin is actually the word in Hebrew, rebellion. And rebellion actually happens in the mind first. The Bible talks about that that when you uh, have a thought and then you let that thought manifest, it becomes sin. And then that sin leads to death. It's the danger of the mind. And then what your mind begins to believe, it starts to set up residence in your heart. And so sin is the main thing that can keep us from being heard by God. Let's look at Psalm 66 and 18. Psalm 66 and 18 says this, I, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. The, the powerful thing about this is understanding what iniquity really means. Iniquity is the things that people cannot see. It's one thing for people to see your sins. They see you uh, fornicating. They see you smoking. They see you drinking. They see you doing these things. But it's another thing to have the sins that people can't see. Those ulterior motives, those uh, th- that hatred, that unforgiveness, those things that don't show on the outside, but God can see on the inside. He said those things are the things that hinder your prayers. Let's look at another scripture uh, in relation to sin. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, it says this, Know ye not that the, that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom? And then it goes on to start naming uh, sins, fornication, idolaters, uh, adulterers, Um, He just keeps naming different sins. He cannot accept anything less than what he's ordained. And so we keep reading throughout scripture. That's why he says, be ye holy for your father in heaven is holy and be ye perfect for your father in heaven is perfect. Because the one thing that separates us from God that that is clear in the Bible is sin. And if you're separated from God, that means your prayers cannot be heard. Let's go to first John. 
Let's look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 6. It says, Whosoever abideth in him sins not, and whosoever sins has not seen him nor known him. If you go back up, he says, If ye that have manifested to take away our sins, in him is no sin. He says, it's, it's just like if I were to come to you and just come up to you and slap you as hard as I can and then say, I'm sorry. You can't continue to sin and then say, I'm sorry, and then come back and do it again and say, I'm sorry, and come back and do it again. It's almost like me slapping you in the face repeatedly as if you're going to believe that I meant sorry the first time. There's no difference with sin. Sin is like slapping God in the face. What good is a true apology if the, if the offense is being repeated? It's not that God doesn't want to. It's the fact that our sins won't allow him to. So sin is one of those big pieces that we already know about. But I got to give you number two. Go with me to James chapter four, verse two. James says this, ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain, ye fight and war, yet you have not because you ask not. Number two is not asking at all. You go through all these motions, you go through all this effort and all this fighting and all this toiling just to come back to the conclusion that all that effort was for nothing. And James paints the picture here that you, you go through all that toiling and all you had to do was ask. It's kind of like trying to sneak something out of the kitchen and you're hoping that you can wiggle away to get the candy out of the kitchen. But all you really had to do was come and ask because you didn't realize they actually bought the candy for you to have. <laughs> That's the same thing with God and his promises. We, we don't ask because we're afraid. And then the reality is he says, I made the promises on purpose. He said, my promises are yay. Yay is not the problem. The promises are not the problem. The problem is the amen because the amen is required by us. Asking is a requirement. He starts saying, if you speak out of your mouth, you have to ask. Matter of fact, the Bible says, ask and it shall be given. You can't get it without asking for it. Thinking does not qualify for an asking. Asking requires your mouth to operate. So number three, number three is in, in James as well. James chapter four, verse three. It says, ye ask and receive not because ye ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lust. Number three is selfishness. Do you know your motives can hinder how God operates in your life? Think about this. Let's use a scenario of a woman praying for her husband to be saved um, and to come to God and live a Christian life. But her real motive is that maybe he'll treat her better. Maybe he'll he'll be a better father to the kids. Maybe he will choose to do things differently and lead the family. And, and while many of us would say that's a legitimate concern or a legitimate ask, but what if that motive, because that motive really is about me benefiting. 
but we don't think or ever ask God how he'll benefit from that prayer. What if that man of God being saved actually sends him away from his family, sends him to be a missionary in a foreign country, and then we'll come back and say, God, that's not what I meant. That's not fair. But the reality for this process is that you have to know God's will because otherwise your motives are selfish. How many of you have prayed some selfish prayers? Matter of fact, uh, many of our prayers daily are really only asking things for ourselves. It's never really considering the will of God or or what he desires for our life or or saying, God, not my will, but your will be done. It's really asking him for specific things and expecting him to give those things back in return just because we ask. But your motive is the reason. So you have sin that we know about that hinder your prayers. You have not asking can hinder your prayers. You have selfishness or your motives can hinder prayers. But the fourth one can be found in Matthew 5. But the fourth one can be found in Matthew 5, verses 23 through 24. It says, therefore, bring thy gift to the altar. And there remember that thy brother has an alt against thee. Leave thy gift before the altar and go thy way, first being reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. The other thing, the number four thing is unforgiveness. He says it here. I don't want your offering until you can reconcile with your brother. And if you pay attention to the scripture, it never says if you had an issue with your brother. It says if your brother has an issue with you. See, we always say it's not me. So then we don't feel like we have to reconcile. But actually, God's word portrays the opposite. That you should be the one reconciling if someone interpreted something you said wrong or or it was offended by something you said. It's not about you being offended. It's about your brother being offended by you. So he says, leave your gift at the altar and, and go and reconcile with your brother and then come back. Because that's required for you to have that right communion with me. Otherwise, your gift will be hindered. Sometimes it's not. Uh, just about forgiving. You know, some people have held grudges to the point that 40 years, 50 years later, they're still angry with people. Some people who are already dead and gone and that anger and unforgiveness is still hindering their connection with God. Matter of fact, some people blame God. And so they have this unforgiveness for him as if he's ripped them off or, or taking something from them, not realizing that God's will is always perfect. But you know what? One of the things I've discovered is that it's not necessarily the biggest thing that you can't forgive others. A lot of people suffer from not being able to forgive themselves. You start telling yourself, you allow the enemy to to, to convince you that you're not worthy of what God has for you. You're not you're not in a good position. Like you're not there yet. He can't do this for you. He can't do that for you. Do you remember what you did? Do you remember? Do you remember? And that's all you keep hearing. Do you remember? You keep looking so much in the rear view that you can't see what's in front of you. And you just refuse to forgive yourself for things God has already forgiven you for. The Bible promises us that if you repent, that he will throw your sins in the sea of forgetfulness, never to be brought up again. But brothers and sisters, you have to believe. 
It's not enough for God to forgive you. You have to forgive yourself because with your mind, you serve the Lord. And so forgiveness is one of those things that many, many believers struggle with. And and they allow this belief to hinder where they go, what they do, and what they think. Because they've painted a picture of themselves that God has not painted of them. But I have to tell you. God loves you. He says, you're the apple of his eye. He says, I I don't want the wicked to perish. He wants to save us all. He wants to love you. He wants his sheep. Matter of fact, he said, I will leave the 99 to get the one. Brothers and sisters, grab hold to his forgiveness. And in his forgiveness, begin to forgive yourself. Now, the the second half of our eight hindrances to prayer, number five, can be found in Ezekiel 14 and 3. Ezekiel 14 and 3, it says this, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and put the stumbling block of their iniquity before their face. Should I be inquired at all by them. Brothers and sisters, number five is idols. See, the definition of idols in Hebrew is vanity or things of vanity, emptiness, words of no result, void of results, no purpose of no reputation. Brothers and sisters, it's not just uh, a boot on the shelf or or um, some kind of idol you have sitting in a shelf that that as long as I don't put those in my house, I am, I'm not worshiping idols. It's everything that's vanity in your life that takes precedent over God. Your favorite thing, if taking majority of your time, can be your idol. We often refer to money as a, as being an idol, which is true for some. There, some people use their jobs as an idol, but guess what? Some people use their children as an idol. They put everything they have into their children. They put everything they have into, into growing them. And, and matter of fact, some live through them, having them to do things that they're not even interested in because they feel like that is what's going to make them have value in their life. But I have to tell you, Jesus is the only one who can give value to your life until you find your vision and purpose. The reason he created you when he looked at you and said, I need you on earth to do this cause. What is that for you? See, too often times we spend time doing things that are just like running on a hamster's wheel. And and it's just like circles and cycles because we've allowed things to become our idol. Some people, Facebook's their idol. They live for the likes. They live for people's responses. Social media drives everything that they do. Before you can even wake up in the morning, the first thing you check is social media. Before you go to bed at night, you check social media. Some people, their phone is their idol. Some, maybe their spouse. The question is, is there something that you're substituting that should be God's time, God's money, God's will 
What's taking precedent over God's will for your life? What's taking precedent that you can't give God his the, the tithe he deserves? But the reality is we all know that 100% of your money is his. He just asked for 10% just for your obedience. What do you put value in over God? Those become your idols and those idols hinder your prayer. See, too many times we go for the advice of people first and then God second. And that's exactly what he was talking about in Ezekiel 14 and 3. The issue was they were seeking after all these idols. It wasn't that they were in their house. They were in their hearts. Brothers and sisters, you'll start to discover a lot of these things that hinder your prayers aren't about what we see on the outside. It's what's on the inside. Having empty things. You start reading the book of Solomon when he's talking about all of it is vanity. You you gain wor the world, you gain houses, you gain cars, you, you can wear all the name brand clothes you like. But at the end of the day, it's all vanity. It's all idols. It's all things we use to please people. But when does God take precedent? Do you give him your time? Do you give him the two hours and, and 40 minutes he deserves due or or? Do you say, I don't have enough time, but you find yourself scrolling and, and if you realize you start to use so much time doing things that have no value that you can't manage to walk without an idol. So, so number five is, is idols that hinder you, but number six is relationships. You can find this in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 17 or Psalms 1 and 2 or even Joshua 1 and 8. The first relationship we'll discuss is the relationship with God. The more you draw to God, the more he draws to you. The more you leave from God, guess what? He doesn't move. It's just you retreating from him. In order for someone to have a solid relationship, you got to spend time with them. Butterflies in the stomach. That you are so in love with somebody, you don't even want to hang up the phone. I remember when me and my wife first met, we would stay on the phone for hours and it would be late night and, a, and we'll have those moments of, baby, you hang up. No, you hang up. No, you hang up. And we'll stay on the phone for hours and one of us falls asleep. We hear the other one breathing hard and say, hey, you sleep, aren't you? And you just don't even want to disconnect because you don't want to miss a thing. Is that your relationship with God that, that you love him so much that you draw to him so much that you can't get enough of him? You can't get enough of his word. You can't get enough of praying to him and listening to him and, and learning about him. Is that the same drive you have that you have for people? I have to be honest. It, it's impossible to have a relationship that sustains with a person if you can't have a sustainable relationship with the God who created them. You have to spend time to get to know someone. And God is no different. When you treat him as if I can come to him when I need something, it's like a genie in a bottle situation. I'll put you on the shelf and then when I need you, I'll pull you down and I'll ask you for something and then I'll put you back up. But in a real relationship, we would never do that to our spouse or to our children we want to spend time with them, get to know them, figure out what makes them happy, what makes them sad. When I find out what makes my wife happy, that's what I will to do. When I figure out what, what makes her smile and what, what makes her angry, I try to avoid the things that make her angry and do the things that make her happy. That's the same thing we should will for our relationship with God. That's why he said obedience is better than sacrifice. 
Sacrifices don't mean much when your obedience is scattered. It's just like saying uh, in a relationship and I'm married and I say, baby, I love you, but I cheated on you. Will you forgive me? And then she forgives me. And then the next day I continue to tell her, baby, I love you, but I'm still cheating on you. Baby, I love you, but I'm still cheating on you. At what point do you realize that my relationship with you is not important if you don't love me enough to not cheat on me? God talks about it all the time. He says, you became the harlot. You left your first love and gone to worship other idols and and spend time with other things that took precedent over me. But brothers and sisters, it's not just about your relationship with God that can hinder your prayer. It's also the relationship with your spouse. First Peter 3 and 7 paints a clear picture. The Bible tells the husband to take care of his wife. Make sure she's pleased as the weaker vessel, lest your prayers be hindered. Brothers, I know this is not something you want to hear, but your spouse can hinder your prayers. The Bible says when you uh, become married, you become one flesh. So when half of you is not working properly, you can't possibly operate at 100%. It's like half of your body working and the other half isn't. How about you try to water what she is rather than dissolve it, rather than throwing weight around? Try to make her be as great as she can be in the kingdom of God because God created her for a purpose just like he created you. And so when men mistreat their wives, their prayers are hindered. When you treat them as less than your prayers are hindered, that would be like Jesus treating the church as if it's less than. It says, God, He, this is the bride and he's the bridegroom. He takes care of the church. He loves the church. He he does everything to make sure the church can be successful. That's how you should be with your wife. I know it's not popular, but I don't want you to go through life thinking that I can pray in independence of my wife being and, and mistreated and God hears me. He says it hinders your prayer. But then number seven, hypocrisy. You see it throughout the New Testament. When you talk about hypocrisy, when you break the the word up in the Hebrew, hypo actually means mask. And crite means actor. What happened um, in this time when they would do drama, you got to understand that that the same person that would come out with a different mask. So their face changed depending on who they, they were acting as. And so... When you see Jesus talking about the, the Pharisees in chapter 5 and chapter 6, he's telling them, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be like the Pharisees, where I can't even figure out one day to the next who you are. It's hard to love someone when you don't know who they are on a day-to-day basis. He says, be consistent, be steadfast, unmovable, always abiding in the Lord. Because if one day you're one person and one day the next, it's it's so hard to please you. That's why he says, be ye holy. You got to understand what the word holy means. Holy means one. He doesn't want you to, to be able to straddle the fence. The Bible says, if you're lukewarm, he'll spew you out of his mouth. He says, either you're hot or you're cold. And and what he's painting the picture of, I just need to know who you are. 
If you're going to be sinful, then be sinful. If you're going to be holy, be holy. But you can't be both at the same time because then I'm confused on how to assist you. Think about the word integration. Integration is another word that means one. And that's where the word integrity comes from. He desires that of us so that we can be as he's called us to be. And so that's why he said, be ye holy, be one. That's why Jesus said, if you abide in me, <laughs> makes you one. In my word, in you. Then anything you ask in my name, it's all about oneness. It's about being exactly who you've been created to be. And that is being one with God. So number five is idols. Number six is relationship. Number seven is hypocrisy or hypocrite. And number eight is faith. So to, to discuss faith, we have to go to James chapter one, verse six. It says this, but let him ask in faith, not wavering. For he that wavers is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. See, this combines number seven and number eight. You can't have faith if you're wishy-washy. Either, either you believe or you don't. Either you trust that he can or you don't. But there is no in-between. He says you have to have faith doubting nothing. The lack of faith can hinder your prayer. If you don't believe me, look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. It reads this, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them who diligently seeks him. Watch this. Faith keeps reaching back to other things that hinder your prayers. On this one, he reaches back to relationship. Let me read it again. It says, but without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder for them that diligently seek him. Spend time with him. Build a relationship with him. But without the faith, it is impossible to please him. We want to please God. If you, if you have a heart for God, that's the one thing you desire is that you please the Lord, but without faith. It's impossible to please him. So I want you to, as we end this uh, dialogue on prayer, to begin to review these sessions and start to apply these things to your life. Begin to go through these eight hindrances of prayer and start to clean out the heart. Start to deal with the heart and, and work through the heart issues. And God said he will do what he said he'll do. He says, my promises are yea. All he's waiting on us to do is complete the amen. Thank you for listening to Kingdom Keys Podcast. We pray it has been a blessing to you. And if it has been a blessing, you want to be a blessing to this ministry, please visit www.theklm.org. 